My name is Kit Bond, uh, 29 years old. I suffered a spinal cord injury in the year 2003. And uh, before that, I was a regular, you know, regular kid. Uh, I was involved with the Army uh, on a, as a reserve component. Um, I was going to school, had a girlfriend, just the usual life story. And on August 2nd, 2003, that all changed. Um, I was involved in a car accident. I uh, don't remember much leading up to the accident. I just remember looking out the window, seeing ground rush towards me. And waking up in a, uh, the cab was uh, engulfed in flames and I couldn't move my hands, I couldn't move my arms or legs. Then after that, I woke up in the hospital and the doctor told me I would never be able to walk again. Spent uh, close to a year kind of in a depression, not knowing what I was gonna do with my life, uh, trying just to get a grip on myself. Uh, went to OSU, Oklahoma State University, I enrolled myself in bio biology and biochem, graduated there. Did some surgeries and spinal cord uh, stuff overseas in China and Portugal. You know, all these surgeries uh, helped out a lot. I've gotten a lot back from them. Uh, I'm not walking, but you know, I do hope to do that someday. Now uh, I'm at WSU doing my graduate studies in molecular biology. One thing that I told myself uh, pretty early on in my injury was that I'd never let my handicap dictate what I do. Uh, I try to keep myself busy. I, I like to give back to people or at least offer some advice that I've learned. Uh, any chance I get, I, I try to help people understand what I've gone through so maybe uh, whatever I've done uh, you know, can help them get through what they're, they're going through. Well, good morning. Wasn't that awesome? I don't know if you, have, you guys have had a chance to meet Kid or not yet, but he's an extraordinary young man. He always inspires me when I see him. Our series is called Valleys, and valleys, of course, are a low place. In the Bible, uh, the, the word valley is often a metaphor for when we go through a difficult time. This morning, I want to I talk about something in specific, and especially I want to talk to those of you who have determined at some point in your life that you were going to follow God seriously. And you really love God, and you enjoy worship, you like the Word of God, you like the things about God, um, and you care about serving God. But now, or sometime in your life, you're in a, or we're in a season of really difficult times, and you're trying so hard to match that up. Because on the one hand, you feel like that if you serve a God who has all power and is good, why am I, as a follower of him who is trying to do right, why am I encountering something that feels so bad and so wrong and so painful? And worse than that, if we, this is maybe the most challenging aspect of it, especially for those of you who may be dealing with the breakup of a marriage. There's a part of us as Christ followers who know what God's will is, and God's will is for homes to work and for marriages to work and God's will is for kids to grow up and follow him and we're struggling to figure out why there's brokenness in an area where we know that God has a different point of view why would somebody who is a God follower who is trying to follow him why would we go through difficult experiences today's talk is for you and it I think is probably the most poignant and maybe most powerful of the four talks in the Valley series. I want to take you to what I feel is the most beautiful psalm. The 23rd psalm is the most famous, but this is the most beautiful, I think, of all the psalms. You know, of course, if, or if you don't, let me, let me just let you know that the word psalm means songs. 
When you read Psalms, it is the longest book of the Bible. It's a collection of songs and different kinds of songs. Some of the songs are messianic. They're prophecies of Jesus coming into our world. For instance, Psalm 23 is a messianic prophecy. Um, Psalm 22 is a description of the crucifixion of Jesus a thousand years before he died on the cross. There are psalms that are lament psalms. We did a series here two or three years ago called Blues, and it was on the lament psalms. But today I want to take you to what I think is the most beautiful song among the 150 psalms. And we're going to break it apart in just a moment and, and dissect it. But before we do, I'd like to read it in its full context so that you can feel the beauty and then maybe see why we're going to spend this 25 or 30 minutes together today. It is Psalm 84, verse 5, which says this, What joy for those whose strength comes from the Lord, who have set their minds on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, when they walk through the valley of weeping, it will become, some translations accurately say, I think more accurately, they will make it a place of refreshing springs. One translation, and I think the most accurate, says they will leave a well. The autumn rains will clothe it with blessings. They will continue to grow stronger, and each of them will appear before God in Jerusalem. Well, that's a beautiful piece of poetry. But we're going to do something right now that's important to us in 2012. We're going to break it apart, and we're going to dissect it, and we're going to see how it relates to our lives today. What we read about is an experience. You saw it when we read through it, the Valley of Weeping. These are people who go through the Valley of Tears. And, and in just a moment, we're going to talk about that place and what it means, the Valley of Tears. But before we can get to the place, we can't escape talking about the people. I think sometimes in our, in our democratic world here in the United States, our democracy, there is a feeling that all things are equal. And perhaps the playing field may be equal, but outcomes are not equal because of choices that are made. And so the people that we're going to read about are people who have made a couple of choices in their life. And so before we talk about the Valley of Weeping, let's take a moment to talk about the people and the choices they made. First of all, the Bible says these are people in verse 5 whose strength comes from the Lord. Now, that could just be a piece of poetry to you, but let me just make this real gut level honest. What is it you depend on to make it through the day? I'm guessing your days are as tough as mine. And some days, my days are really tough. And I bet that same thing happens for you. I mean, you know, if it, if it was just work, that'd be one thing. But it isn't just work. It's relationship issues. And, and it isn't just relationship issues and work. It's health. And you start throwing in all the aspects of difficulty. And some of us face really difficult days. What is it you depend on to make it through the day? What do you, how, where do you draw your strength to get from one end of the day to the, to the next? Well, I, I think we need to talk about this today because we've had another celebrity, Whitney Houston, pass away long before her time. And we think about lost potential. What a beautiful voice. How many of us have been inspired by her music? How many of us have enjoyed those magnificent songs that Whitney sang? And it's hard for us to think about a 48-year-old woman passing before her time. And at this moment, I don't know what took her life, but there are whispers, there are hints that perhaps she is another celebrity who abused alcohol or abused drugs, and they contributed to her early loss of life. We tend to isolate and, and look at these celebrities, but my gut instinct tells me that they're just a reflection of all of us, that what happens in their lives is happening in the lives of many people around us. 
For instance, if you want to try to figure out how many alcoholics there are in America and you start researching that, you're going to discover it's a really difficult thing because we know that there are a number of alcoholics in America, but there's so many that are undiagnosed that the statistics, if we knew them, would probably be staggering. <clears throat> I don't know what caused Whitney Houston to lose her life. I don't know what caused other celebrities to lose their lives necessarily. I haven't seen the toxicology reports, but I do know this. I, I think sometimes instantly when we hear about people like her, we want to say they must be bad people. You know, we're going to just say they're bad people. They're, they're, they're drug users. They're, they're abusers of alcohol. And I think that there is a sense that because they're rich and because they're famous and because they have high-pressure lifestyles, that they want to recreate and they use substances to recreate. Okay, maybe so. But from what I've read, when I read about celebrities who get to the place of losing their lives, and not just celebrities, but other people I've known, maybe it started out recreationally, but there was a point where it wasn't pleasure anymore. They were just using substances to make it through the day. The, 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 the booze didn't give the rush that it gave at one point. It just became, it just became an, a wall of insulation to keep the hurt from coming through. And it could be that that's where you are today. And you depend upon the wrong kind of drugs to make it through. Or you depend on drinking alcohol to make it through. And maybe you keep it quiet or maybe it's something that everybody knows. Or there are others of us here today who could say we make it through because of a particular person. There's someone in our lives that we've looked to and we say, that person gets me through. It, it is my wife. It is my husband. It's my girlfriend. It's, it's the, the guy in my life. It is maybe someone that you work, maybe it's your boss or someone that's in your life. And your life revolves around one person. And, and if that person is up about you, everything is good. If that person is down on you, then everything is bad. The problem with depending upon a person to get you through is even the best person is going to come up short. And there are many tragic stories of people who are in abusive relationships, and when they're asked why don't they get out of this abusive relationship, whether even, even their health, the health of their children are at risk, the simple fact of the matter is, at some moment they have decided that that person is who they depend on to make it through the day. And this one's getting a little more close to home, because I think that maybe some of us who passed the first two questions may get trapped in this third one. How many of us make it through the day on positive accolades, on a feeling of success, on people telling us that we're smart, people telling us that we're productive, people telling us we're attractive? How many of us get through the day? We, we live from one compliment to the next. We live from one accolade to the next. And here's the thing. For those of us who depend on that, isn't it true that you can have 10 positive reinforcements for what you do and all it takes is one person to come along and rip you and all of a sudden what happens? All your strength ebbs away. I mean, it's like it just cuts the very heart out of you. And you don't feel like doing anything anymore. You don't feel like working anymore. You don't feel like making love to your husband or wife anymore. You don't, just, there's nothing that makes you feel good because you depend on positive reinforcement and boom, somebody said something that was unpleasant or unkind or cutting or diminishing and we lose our strength. Here's what the Bible says. What joy 
for those who draw their strength from the Lord. These are people who say, I make it through based on the Lord. The Lord is who keeps me from falling apart. Now, joy there is, is an okay translation, but it's not the best translation. Honestly, folks, when I read that, I listen, I hear the Rolling Stones in the background. All of you who are young, you have no idea who the Rolling Stones are. They are a prehistoric rock group. They were big when I was young. The word that's most usually used to describe the Stones today is arthritic. Um, you know, Keith and Mick look like the walking dead when they're up on stage. Uh, but the Stones did a song that was big for a long time. It was sort of anthematic for the Stones. And the song, song was, I can't get no satisfaction. See, the word joy there really means satisfaction. In other words, satisfaction is getting what you expect to get. In other words, people who draw their strength from the Lord, you know what they get? They get satisfaction. They get what they expect to get. If you draw your strength from substances, you're going to be singing with the Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I tell you, it took a certain amount of booze yesterday, it'll take more tomorrow. And if it took a certain amount of drugs yesterday, it'll take more tomorrow. This is how these people get trapped into a lifestyle of abusing substances and taking too many drugs and drinking too much alcohol. It's that it takes more and more and more because you can't get no satisfaction. If you draw your strength from a person, you're singing with the stones. If you get your strength from positive reinforcement, accolades of your peers, you can't get no satisfaction. But what satisfaction for those who draw their strength from the Lord? Guys, let me tell you what I do when I get ready for a talk. I sort of anticipate what you would say back to me. I don't know that I'm always successful. But whenever I lay down a track like I just laid down a moment ago, I sort of wonder, what would somebody say if they're sitting out there in the audience who disagreed with that? Because it could be that you're sitting out there saying, Mark, I draw my strength from the Lord, and I would say that, but I still worry all the time. I'm right there with you. If you ask me, Mark, who is the source of your strength? Who gives you the strength to make it through the day? I would say it's God. But if you see my fingernails, they're chewed down. How, and, and that's the question that we should ask. How can a person who draws his strength or her strength from the Lord still worry? You know why we worry? Because we, we haven't understood something. God gives us strength as we need it. He makes deposits into our account. And worrying is usually about the future. It's worrying about Things that haven't materialized yet. Lord knows I'd love to have the days I spent worrying over stuff that never materialized. I mean, if you went down to your bank and tried to make a withdrawal when you haven't made a deposit, they'd frown on that. And most of the time, what's try what we're trying to do when we worry is we're asking for God to give us strength for something we haven't encountered yet. We're asking things like, what happens if my marriage falls apart? But your marriage hasn't fallen apart today. You're asking, what happens if I lose my job? But you still have your job today. What happens if one of my kids goes crazy? Your kid hasn't gone completely crazy yet today. <laughs> what happens if I die? You're not ready to die yet. The old timers used to talk about dying grace or dying strength. In other words, when that time comes, God will put the deposit into the account. You'll be able to withdraw it. But the problem with worry is that we're trying to withdraw strength that God hasn't given us yet. What strength, what satisfaction, rather, for those who get their strength from God? You can always say, Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. You can wake up in the morning and say, whatever I encounter today, I can do it with God's help. Now, the second thing we see about these people is not only do they draw their strength from God, but number two, they've set their minds on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That's Old Testament. 
Back in those days, everybody went to the temple several times a year. We, of course, live in the New Testament, and God lives inside of us. So to give this a modern translation, it would simply be these are people who have set their mind to pursue God. Several years ago, I wound up speaking in a conference with Steve Saint, and I don't know if that name rings a bell to any of you, but if you're like myself and older, you may remember the story of five missionaries who went to Ecuador in 1956 to work with a tribe of people that really didn't even have a defined language. They were a completely unreached people group. And these five brilliant missionaries, led by Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, tried to make contact with this tribe, and the tribe misunderstood what they were trying to do, and unfortunately, the tribe killed five, speared five of these missionaries and left their bodies lying out on the beach. And it was a major story in all the United States magazines. But the widows of those missionaries stayed there and continued to have missionary work, and Steve was the son of Nate Saint who was killed, and he grew up there. And, and so when he spoke that night, I couldn't wait for him to speak. And he started talking about how they developed a, a written language or, or even a conceptual language for these people who had no idea who God was, who had no idea who Jesus Christ was. They had to find some way to start from scratch. And they were trying to explain what it meant to be saved, what it meant to accept Christ what it meant to have a relationship. And I'm sure they were trying all these Western world terms. And finally, one of the tribesmen said, I get it. You must understand, they lived in the, in the jungle, and the only thing that led into the clearing where they all lived was a series of trails. And he said, what you're asking us is to get on God's trail. And if you look at, they now have a Bible in their language. And every time there's a reference to being a Christian, that reference always says getting on God's trail. I love that, don't you? And so these are people who not only draw their strength from the Lord, they have decided to get on God's trail. And I think it's important for us to stop for a moment and ask if that's the case with you and me. Do you love? God loves. Do you forgive? God forgives. Do you serve? God serves. Do you hate sin? God hates sin. And was there a moment in your life where you decided, I just want to follow God, I want to get on the God trail? These are people who draw their strength from God, and they have set their minds. I think that is a powerful expression. It means they don't flit around with a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Maybe I want to follow God, maybe I want to do my thing. These are people who have set their minds to follow God. But uh-oh, verse 6, they walk through the valley of weeping. See, that's what we find in Congress these are good people. These are people who are passionate about God. And all of a sudden, they go through the valley of weeping. We don't have televangelists much anymore, but back in the 80s and 90s, it was popular for there to be televangelists who would get up and give the invitation to their Rolex watches and then get on their jet planes and so on and so forth. And many of them came to fame by a message that said that God wants you never to have problems, basically. No doubt that's very popular, but it's very untrue. Because even people who draw their strength from God, people who love God and want to follow him, go through the valley of weeping. But lest someone say it doesn't pay to follow God, could I just say this? All of us are going through the valley of weeping. Whether you're the most rock-ribbed atheist or you're the most dedicated follower of Jesus, everybody goes through the valley of weeping. Christopher Hitchens, the, the, the atheist, most, perhaps one of the most famous atheists, 
died recently from the same cancer that a pastor friend of mine died from recently. Everybody goes through the valley of weeping. But here's where we get to the point of the message. And here's where I want to spend the next 12, 15 minutes. There's something about these people who draw their strength from God, who set their minds on following God. When they come to the valley of weeping, they don't see it like everybody else. First of all, the Bible says they walk through it. See, they're on their way to God. They're on their way to experience God. They're on their way to God's presence. Back in the Old Testament, they were on their way to Jerusalem. They had to walk through the desert, and there was this valley of weeping that they had to walk through. But they never, this is big, they never confused the destination with the valley. From the very beginning, they saw the valley as a place to go through. They realized the valley would not end them. It was just something they had to go through. But that's where something extraordinary happens. Verse 6. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. Or as one translation says, they make it a well. These travelers, these followers of Jesus find themselves in a place where tears are streaming down their face. They didn't necessarily expect to encounter this, but when they go through it, instead of the valley changing them, they change the valley. Instead of circumstances changing them, they change circumstances. Now here's where it really gets serious. I I tried to really wrap my arms around what was in these people's mind, these travelers who find themselves going through this desert place, this valley of weeping, and while they're weeping, they get a shovel out and start digging. I'm trying to think, what was it that was in their mind? And then it hit me. Here's what they were saying. I have to go through this valley. There's nothing I can do about it. I would have changed it if I could. I would have kept my marriage together if I could have. I would have kept my kids back from this disaster if I could have. I would have kept this loved one from dying if I could have. I would have never contracted cancer if I could have avoided it. I mean, these are people who go through the valley of weeping and say, I I don't want to be here, but I refuse. If I must go through this valley, I refuse to let it be meaningless. It must mean something. If I'm going to have to go through this, then something has to make sense here. It's got to make some difference. I I can't go through this valley and shrug it off and say nothing was important there. It must mean something. And by the way, only people who draw their strength from God and only people who are set to follow God can, can, can even be there. Because if you don't believe in God's existence and there is no purpose to life and when you go through the valley of weeping, you just got to say it didn't mean anything. It's just luck of the draw. But God followers don't say that. It's just got to mean something. Now, when you come to that place where it's got to mean something, you got a couple of choices. And this is what I want you to think about. See, some people, when they go through the valley of weeping, they say, this has just rocked me down. This has stripped me down to base metal. And it's got to mean something. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to build a monument. I'm going to build a monument for everybody else to see who comes down this valley. I I want them to see the pain that I went through. So I'm going to build a monument here. And we understand why people do that. When I was a teenager, (laughs) 
an old-fashioned Baptist church in the middle of Fort Worth, and yet we were on the hottest rock and roll station in Dallas-Fort Worth. 11 to 12 o'clock live on Sunday mornings. <laughs> you talk about things that don't match. I mean, here we are with this old-fashioned Baptist church, hottest rock and roll station in Dallas-Fort Worth. I always wonder what, you know, when I was a kid, a teenager, I used to wonder what people, you know, normal listeners would think when they turned it on Sunday morning. They would think, and most of them were still stoned. They were thinking, wow, this is a strange trip. <laughs> but I remember at the end of one of our services, I was leading worship back in those days. At the end of our service, there was a gentleman who drove up and he met my dad and told dad that he had been listening to us for a long time with his wife, but his wife had passed away that very morning. And of course, he was sobbing. And dad, comforter that he is, comforted him and, and he asked dad if dad would do the service. Dad assured him he would. And I remember that this man began to drive over to our house. And then he began to appear just about every day. He became part of our lives. He was there for supper. I mean, he was just there all the time. And here is the thing. He told us the same story. It was like the story of his wife became a loop. And he played it, and he played it, and he played it. And you know what? We loved him, and we understood. She was the love of his life. And so, you know, for days and weeks and months, we, we sat there and we listened to it and with all the sympathy we could because his, he'd gone through the valley of weeping. And he said, it's got to mean something here. This woman was important to me. She was my life. And so he just kept playing it. But I'm not talking about days, weeks, months. I'm talking about years. Five years later, we would still see his car in our parking lot. And he would tell us the same story we'd heard time and time again. And we loved him. And we tried to listen as though we'd never heard it before. But I'll be honest with you. When I, was, you know, when I was in college, if I knew about the time he was going to show up, I would get in my car and I was gone. I would leave mom and dad to hear the story again. And, and you can think I'm being unsympathetic if you want to be. I'm not. I was very sympathetic. All I'm saying is this. His life stopped at that moment when his wife passed. I remember old movies about detectives back in the 20s and 30s before crime science evolved. Oftentimes, if, if a detective was staking out a suspect, he would place a, a cheap watch in front of the rear tire so that when the suspect drove away, he, the, it would crush the watch and the, the watch would stop at that time and the detective would know whenever the suspect left. For this gentleman, it's as if his life rolled over a clock and broke it and stopped it at that moment. And he built a monument. And maybe you can make that choice. How many of us know someone who is in our lives and every time we see them, they're going to tell us about the day their clock stopped, the day that her husband walked out or his wife walked out. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a season for that. There's a season of grieving. And I'm not, I'm not diminishing that at all. And God help us to be sympathetic and empathetic. But how many of us know people who, for years now, they go back to the monument and they take you by the hand and they want to take you back to the monument. And anyone who meets them, I mean, it's like they have a group of friends. They lose those friends over time. They go get new friends and bring them to the monument. But then there's another choice you can make. See, there are people who come to the, through the valley of weeping, and while the tears are still falling down their face, they say, this has got to mean something. And they say to themselves, you know, there are going to be other travelers who are going to come to this place. And I, 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 don't want other, I don't want other travelers to go through this valley 
as I've gone through it. I want them to have a, a better time going through this valley than I had. I want to find some way to touch travelers who are coming through this valley who don't have any idea that it's coming. I've been here. I'm crying even right now. But I want to find some way and so to, to help them. And they get out a shovel and they think, you know what, this is a desert place. What if when people come through the valley of weeping, what if they had a well here? What if they had a place where they could get some cool water and drink some water and, and, and dab handkerchiefs in the water and wash the tears away? What if, what if there was a well here? There's a local story about this. Glenn and Lois Tommy. Glenn Tommy was the director of the rescue mission. His wonderful wife, Lois, in 1982, contracted a specially aggressive form of breast cancer, and the prognosis was not good. Lois has told me many times that there are well-meaning Christians, sometimes pastors, who tried to bring encouragement to her, but because they didn't understand her situation, oftentimes their words of encouragement instead felt like quips to hurt her. And she thought to herself, what if there could be encouragement for people who go through cancer from people who know what it's like to go through cancer? And in 1983, thankfully God healed Lois. In 1983, Lois started a ministry called, of all things, you ready for this? Victory in the Valley. And not only did that ministry provide encouragement, it provided spiritual help. But in time, they began to provide physical help, lodging. And they have ministered to thousands of people in this state. It has been a game changer. President Bush called it one of the thousand points of light. Here was a woman who said, if I'm going to have to go through cancer, if I'm going to have to experience these incredibly difficult treatments, it's got to mean something. And I'm not going to build a monument here. I'm going to dig a well for others who come along behind me. And, and for now, years, decades, other travelers have come through the valley. And Lois and her team have been there to refresh them. They dug a well. Many of you know my parents. Many of you have had my dad and mom pray with you or visit you in the hospital. If you have, you know that no one can pray for you like my dad. No one can comfort you like my mom and dad. They have an extraordinary gift. And many of you have spoken about it, but I wonder if you know where it was forged. A couple of weeks ago, I was at my parents' house, and some New Springers came over, and they saw the picture of a little boy, about three years old, framed in their living room. And... I was asked, is that you? And I said, no, that, that's not me. That's my brother, Roger. My dad was just a country boy who came to Fort Worth to study for ministry. He didn't have any ministry background. He just knew God had called him to preach. When he was 25 years old, and he left behind farming, and he'd also learned to do painting. He painted houses. And in his first months, of studying to be a minister. He worked out of a local lumberyard in Fort Worth. And people would come into the lumberyard needing jobs, needing handy, you know, painting jobs, taping and bedding and that kind of thing. And so dad would come at the end of his classes and just stay at the lumberyard and wait for someone to come in with a job. And that's how he kept food on the table in those early days. Dad was cleaning his brushes one afternoon and the guy walked into the Berry Street Lumber Yard in Fort Worth, Texas and said, we've got about three families out here that are thinking about starting a church and we're looking for a preacher. He was talking to the manager. And almost as a half a joke, the manager 
jerked his thumb over toward my dad who'd only been studying a few weeks and said, there's a preacher over there. And the man went over to my dad and asked him if he would come out and speak. I'll bet your dad hadn't spoken more than two or three times in his life. But he went out there on the last Sunday of August in 1951. He would retire almost 50 years later from that church. <laughs> the unofficial moniker for this particular area of the inner city in Fort Worth was called Ignorant Hill. And man, at times it lived up to its name. <laughs> a lot of those families that had banded together to start a church, they were sort of outcasts from other churches because they were always people who run, wanted to run the pastor off. So they all got together and decided they would band together, start their own church, run all the pastors off. And uh, dad <laughs> preached his heart out, and for many times they made his life a living nightmare. He especially went through a difficult time about four years after he started pastoring. When he was 29, he and my mom were 29. He was going through a really difficult time in the church, and right at that moment, my brother Roger contracted brain cancer. And my mother and dad watched Roger die before their eyes. I've thought so many times, how do they get through? How do they make it through? People grieve in different ways. For my dad, the way he handled his grief was he would go to the hospitals in Fort Worth, All Saints, St. Joseph, John Peter Smith. He would go to the hospitals, and especially the children's wards. Polio was raging at that time. And dad would go to the polio wards, and he would go from room to room to room. And he would talk to parents who were in the process, many of them, of losing their children. And, and just he would, and the doctors would warn him, Reverend, we can't promise you that you won't contract this illness yourself. But it didn't stop him. And through the years, of course, that happened all before I was born. But through the years, I watched him as he's had a specific and unique gift for touching people when they're going through difficult times. And, I, and I've often thought, that what happened was when my dad and mom went through the valley of tears, they said, Roger has got to mean something. His life has got to mean something. Yes, there's a, a monument, a little tiny cemetery in the hill country of Texas. There's a little grave in a country cemetery that you have to cross a creek to get to. And there's a little stone. This is Roger W. Hoover, and my mother put our favorite hymn there, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. Yes, there's a monument, but most of us will never visit that monument. But many of us have been refreshed by a well, because when they came to that valley of tears, they said, he's got to mean something, and we're not going to build a monument. We're going to dig a well. <laughs> you, there's a verse you could almost overlook if you weren't careful. It's verse 6 where the Bible says the autumn rains came and filled the pools. See, I, I don't know that these people ever hit water. It was a pretty ludicrous thing when you think about it. It was almost an irrational thing to dig a well in the middle of a desert. How many of us who go through valleys and we think, wow, I, I don't want other people to suffer. I want, them to, I want them to experience something. But we don't have the money. We don't have the strength. We don't have the resources to make it happen. We just have the desire to make a difference. I'm sure if you could talk to Lois or my parents or others of you who've dug a well or Kit, they would say, wow, we didn't have the resources. We just wanted to dig a well. And the Bible says that when they started digging, that the autumn rains came. Where do the autumn rains come from? They come from heaven. 
I mean, God looked down, and it was irrational, and it didn't make sense. Here is children going through the valley of weeping on their way to worship him, but they got their shovel out, and they're trying to dig away, and God said, I got to do something about this. I just got to fill these holes with water. Well, let's bring this in for a landing. The Bible says in verse 7, they go from strength to strength. An odd thing happens. When they come out of the valley, they're stronger than when they went in. Can you testify? I mean, can you, how many of us can say that? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you say, wow, wow, when I went through the valley, I thought it was going to finish me off, but I went through there, and I kept following God, and I got my shovel out and started digging a well, and you know what? When I came out, I came out stronger than I went in. I thought the divorce was going to end my life, but for somehow I came out stronger than I went in. I, I thought this catastrophe was going to end me, but I can't. See, the Bible says they go from strength to strength. My wife, Mary Ellen's favorite series that I ever did at New Spring was the first series I ever did back in the mid-80s. Boy, how's this for branding? It was called The Progressive Splendor of the Christian Life. What a lame title. It's a long way from The Progressive Splendor of the Christian Life to freaking messed up. But in any event, that was, that was my first title. But there were four scriptures that intrigued me. One of them is they go from strength to strength. In Romans 1.17, the Bible says we go from faith to faith. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, the Bible says we are changed from glory to glory. In John chapter 1, the Bible says we go from grace, or grace to grace. See, grace and strength and faith and glory, these are all things that God wants to bring us to a higher level. If you have faith, he wants to bring you to more faith. If you have grace, he wants to give you more gifts. If you have strength, he wants to give you more strength. And so these people who go through the valley and they dig a well, they come out and their strength is greater than it was when they went in. And finally this, verse 7, they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. You want a 2012 translation of that? They make it. They make it. See, when you and I go through the valley, the question that we ask is, am I going to make it? Because these are people who set their heart to follow God. They set their heart to get to God. But they make it. Each one of them, every one of them, every one of these God followers who goes to the valley of weeping, they make it. And you may be wondering today, am I going to make it? The answer is yes. Can I make it through this loss of somebody I love? Can I make it through this breakup of my marriage? Can I make it through this catastrophe with my kid? Can I make it through losing my job? Yes. You can make it. And God will give you the strength. And even if death itself comes, do you realize that death for the child of God, you, you really don't stop. You just open your eyes and you're in the presence of God. I think the first, question, first thing we're going to say when we get to heaven is, I made it. And there's Jesus. See this thing about going through the valley of weeping and digging a well? You know, this is Jesus stuff. Because the ultimate person to go through the valley of weeping and leave a well is Jesus. Guys, let me be honest with you today. There are two places to go when this life is over. There's heaven, which is just a, a term for God's place, and it's awesome off the charts, and there is a place called hell. And you can't deny it, Jesus talked more about it than anybody else. So, not some walled-eyed prophet. It was, it was Jesus who talked. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody, and he got more graphic and more descriptive of it. Do you know where Mark deserves to go? I'm going to be straight with you. I don't have any question in my mind. I deserve to go straight to hell. Just keeping it real. 
Because you know what you have to be to go to heaven? You have to be perfect. And I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. And I can't even lay claim to being good. Not if I consider, if I compare myself to other people, I might be able to pull that off. But when I compare myself to what God calls good, that's a different matter. See, God didn't grade on the curve. I deserve to go to hell. No doubt. But that's where John 3.16 comes in. That's why we love it so much. God loved the world. It's not what it says. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever can pull off perfection, is that what it says? No, no, no. Whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. God sent his son to live the life I can't live and then to die the death that paid the price for my sin so that I can come free of charge, an imperfect, flawed man, with dysfunction and craziness that embarrasses me, somebody like me can come to Jesus. And because he went through the valley of weeping and left a well, I can come and drink from that well. Isn't it interesting that the Bible calls eternal life the fountain where you come and drink? In fact, did you realize the last major message of the Bible in Revelation, is, in Revelation 22 says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. He left a well. And if you will ask him to come into your life, he will forgive you of all your sins, even sins that are part of your future. Wash, adopt you into God's family. If that's never happened to you, would you be all right with it happening this morning? Because you know what? All you have to do to receive something free is just to reach out and accept it. You don't have to clean yourself up, get your life all straight, tie a bow around it, hand it to God. He wouldn't accept that anyway. He wants you to come just like you are. If you come like you are, he'll receive you. He won't leave you like he found you, but he'll receive you just like you are. Come like you are. Come broken and be fixed. Come imperfect and be made clean. If you'd like to have that happen, here's what I'm going to do. I want to help you. I'm going to pray a prayer that reaches out to God, and you can repeat it after me. And it's not the words that matter. It's what you feel in your heart. God's just looking for a big yes, so any way you say yes to him, he's going to take it. But this is a prayer that reaches out to him. I'll say it slowly because I want you to think about it and mean it. You ready? Let's do it. Dear God, I am a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I lay no claim to perfection. You know how broken I am. But I believe you love me. I believe you love me unconditionally. I believe your love for me is greater than I can imagine. I believe you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life and to die on the cross as a payment for my sins. Today I get off my road, and by faith I get on your road. Do for me what I cannot do for myself. Forgive me and make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. Pray with me one more moment, please. If you're going through a valley today, you got a lot of burdens. 
And I know it's hard because I've been through valleys myself. But I'm going to pray for you and you pray with me that by the grace of God, you can lay down your burdens. Lay them down and pick up a shovel. Let's pray. Father, you know the heart and the heartbreak of your people. And you know what they're going through. Father, you know those who have lost loved ones here today. You know those who have gotten diagnoses from the doctor. You know those who are not sure their marriage is going to make it another week. Father, you know those whose kids are breaking their hearts. And they're wondering if they're going to make it through. Now, Lord, I pray you'll give them the strength to follow you. To realize this is not the end of the journey. It's just the valley of tears. And help them, Lord, to find comfort by digging a well. Help them, Lord, lay down their burdens. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I want you to listen to a song. I hope it inspires you the way it inspires me.
Hey, before you head out, let me just get a couple more minutes from you. If you've ever wondered how somebody can go through a hard time in their life and somehow still have joy and peace in the midst of that storm, it's because they have a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't have that relationship, you need it. When you walked in, you received a worship guide. One side just asked for information about you. The other side has a list of next steps. And one of those next steps is how do I get more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ? What does that even mean? Your eternity is too important to not get those questions answered. So check the box. Let us send you some information or have a conversation with you. Get those questions answered. If you prayed with Mark just a few minutes ago and accepted Christ, we want to celebrate with you. We've prepared a packet of information you can pick up at guest services in the front or in the back. We've got a DVD in there, some information, a certificate for a new Bible. We celebrate with you. If you want to follow in the next step of obedience and be baptized, next month on the 10th and 11th, we're going to have our watermark celebration. In front of your friends and family, you can proclaim that you've trusted Jesus and you're not ashamed. If you want information about joining the church, getting in a connection group, serving in a ministry, whatever decision God's laid on your heart, check the appropriate box, fill this card out, put it in one of our collection boxes before you leave, and let's get you down the next step. Okay, would you stand and pray with me? Father, we're so thankful that you don't leave us in our broken condition. You do take us just how we are, but you don't leave us that way. And even when we go through those dark times and those storms in life, you're there to pick us up and guide us through, and we have a choice to make. And I pray that we choose to celebrate you and praise you in the midst of it and give you all the credit because you're working it for your glory and for our good. So we just say thank you. Thank you for your love, for your faithfulness, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us. I hope to see you next week. Say hi to some friends before you leave. Have a great day.